Well, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the book of uh, Titus, Titus this morning. I'm going to talk about this morning that it, uh, really the, the major subject that it's really all about grace. It's all about grace. And so in Titus chapter 2, I, I'm actually, uh, can I ask you that are able to stand, if you would stand, I'm going to read all of chapter 2. Uh, it's only 15 verses. Uh, that's probably not as shocking as sometimes when I preach through Psalm 119 and I, pre- and I actually read all 176 verses. So... 15 we can get through. All right. Paul the Apostle says to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. That they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things show yourself, to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly uh, desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen? You may be seated. Father, we thank you this morning for your word the trustworthiness of your communication to us through the means of the Bible. And we thank you, Lord, for grace upon grace that you've given to us. And now, Lord, as we have the opportunity to look into your word for these few moments, pray that you'll guide and direct. Lord, I pray that you would remove me and move me out of the way that we might hear from the Spirit of God and know what you are saying to us as not only individuals but as a church. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the fact that you've called us to be lights in a dark dark culture today. And may we shine forth brightly uh, the testimony of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in December of 1983 that an issue of Moody Monthly, if anybody's been around long enough to understand uh, the uh, magazine, it was a story regarding Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. Now, these were two preachers uh, in London at the time. Both had churches there in the 19th century. On one occasion, uh, Parker commented on the poor condition of children that were admitted to uh, Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. So, 
which was typical in those days. Spurgeon got in the pulpit and he blasted Parker the next week. Um, the attack was printed then in the newspapers. Yeah, there it goes. And became the talk of the town. Just what you want, right? Uh, people flocked to Parker's church next Sunday. Guess what? They wanted to hear his rebuttal. What he had to say about Spurgeon. It was this back and forth thing. Uh, I'm going to quote here. I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead, unquote. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to take uh, the plates three times around because uh, there was so much money that was coming into it. Later that week, there was a knock on Parker's study, and it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This is what Spurgeon said, and I quote, You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed, unquote. Folks, that's what grace is. That's what true grace is. And I think that's a great picture that describes for us the true essence of God's grace to humankind. In a world where you need to earn what you get, where judgment triumphs mercy, and where kindness is suspect, we need God's grace that abounds unmerited to us. It's beyond description. That's why we sing, Come thou fount of every blessing, Turn my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Amen? That's grace. And my main thought this morning as we work through uh, Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 is simply this. Grace bestows marvelous benefits on the undeserving. Grace bestows marvelous benefits on the undeserving. Uh, none of us in this room today or listening to this can ever say, I deserve God's grace. No, you don't. We are given it to it because of his eternal blessing and benefit to us. That is what grace is. And I want to see, set the scene uh, for us this morning by having us consider three aspects of God's grace. Uh, I'm going to have us look at God's grace transforms, God's grace instructs, and God's grace hopes. Those three simple aspects this morning. First of all, in verses 11 and the first part of verse 12, grace transforms. Again, there we read in verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now, that grace that's got that power to transform is evidenced, uh, first of all, by what Paul says, through the appearing of Jesus Christ. That, that is the epitome of all grace is the fact that Christ came to earth. John 1.14 uh, we uh, often talk about this in the time of 
Christmas season. We're getting close to that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Glory is revealed as the light shining in darkness. And if there was ever a day and age where we need the light to shine in darkness, it's today. The world is darker than it ever has been. And light must shine. And Jesus came. Jesus appeared according to the Apostle Paul. That was grace in physical aspect by the appearing of our Savior. Perfect timing according to the Bible. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Not an accident. Not, not just uh, inconsequential to the time period of the day. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was at the exact right time that God said, Now is the day, now is the hour that Christ would come. It was fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 7.14, of course. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, has appeared through the form of Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is now incarnate here upon the earth at the time that the prophecy said it would happen and the way exactly the prophecy said it would. He came and he's coming again. Those are the epiphany of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bookends, we might say, of his life. He came once and he's coming again. Amen? Amen. Coming again. And we're going to talk more about that here in a moment. And I would say to that, Oh, glorious day, as the old song said. Oh, glorious day. It's evidenced, this grace is evidenced by the appearing of Christ. That's where we start. And that's where Paul starts here in verse 11. So never forget that, that, that blessing and that benefit that is bestowed would not have happened without God initiating it, and that has happened through Jesus Christ. Uh, I look forward to exploring that more as we get closer to Christmas. You know, that, that just, there's something about that that just kind of settles that more in our minds. But uh, it, it was just, not just through the appearing of Lord Jesus Christ, because Paul also goes on to say that that grace is evidence to the salvation of mankind. Notice what he says, bringing salvation to all men. That's still part of the grace. By the way, I, I want you to understand that I believe that grace is just flows from 11 through 14, even though you don't see the word again. I think that grace is just meshed in so much with this. And it's not just grace that brought Jesus Christ and he appeared, but the purpose from his coming shows us that grace in bringing salvation to, to make sufficient atonement for mankind. God has provided a way in which you and I as sinners are forgiven by the sacrificial death of Christ by faith and grace alone. Amen? Turn back, hold your finger there, turn back to what we just read a few minutes ago in Romans chapter 5. Go back to Romans chapter 5 and we'll see how this fits. And there's so much we could say there, but I'm just going to look at the last two verses of Romans 5 that we just read. Here's what it says. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, the very next word, at least in the New American Standard Bible, is exactly what we're talking about. Where sin increased, grace 
about it all the more. Now, we must not get too confused because in Romans chapter 6, the very next verse, the very next chapter says, What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that great might, grace might increase? There's a, that's a rhetorical question. And, and the language is from Bob, not the Greek, but close. Absolutely not. We're, we're not to go out and sin just because God's grace appeared and He brought salvation and now we can just do whatever we want. By the way, I've had people tell me that. Well, I can sin because God will forgive me anyway. And I want to say like Paul, God forbid. That's not the point. That's why he said in verse 2, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We go back to verse 20. Grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Back to Titus. Titus says, Christ appeared bringing grace to all men and bringing that salvation to us. He gave us as sinners forgiveness. Aspects to bring us as new creatures into union with a holy God. Now there's an awesome thought, huh? There's a thought that ought to blow our minds. That, that somehow we as new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we as new creatures can now stand righteous before a holy God. And we can have a, a union, a relationship with this holy God. Because grace appeared, bringing salvation to all men. By the way, this is not universal salvation. But it is a salvation that is universal. And what I mean by that is that not everybody is going to get saved. That's not Paul's idea here, bringing salvation to all men so everybody's saved. Uh, if that were the point, then he'd just snap his fingers. That's not the point here. But salvation has gone out to all of mankind in every part of the world. And that's what we're trying to do, aren't we? Through missionary efforts, through our neighborhoods. Uh, we have more of a mission field here in the States, I think, as we do anywhere in the world today. We've got people all around us that will tell you, I have never heard the name Jesus. I have no idea or clue what this thing called sin is. In a nation where it ought to be just flowing, which it did many years ago, it doesn't anymore. We are in such a godless, dark nation here. And to know we have the opportunity to bring that message. 2 Timothy chapter 1 says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. It's Paul writing. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, unquote. Notice he has called us to a holy calling by his own purpose and by his grace. So the first aspect of God's grace is the fact that it transforms. 
it, it, it changes us. That, that's what it's all about. As it takes you and I, as those who were, weren't worthy of His grace, and He brought it to us. Grace appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That in itself, we could say, Amen, let's go eat. But there's so much more that flows from that grace aspect to the second, which is grace instructs. There, there's so much more that God wants us to understand. And that's why in verse 12, he says this, instructing us to deny, or to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, this is the New American Standard, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. There's the assignment, but it's grace. Folks, we can't do it on our own. Um, it just doesn't work. And there's two things that become evident from verse 12, and that is this grace instructs us in what we're not to do, but it also instructs us in what we are to do. Isn't that good? I had a young man once come to me and said, Bob, why are you telling us about the negative stuff we're doing? I said, because without knowing what we're not to do, we aren't going to know the positive of what we should do. And if we don't know what we should do, we're not going to know what we should, what we should stop doing. Okay? So Paul puts those back to back. And, and, and he talks about them. And the word instructing is kind of an interesting word here in the Greek. Uh, it, it's kind of the word training. Some translations have different words. But it has that kind of idea of teaching, okay? Uh, in the classical Greek system, it was, and I quote, education and training, which came to include, notice this, gymnastics, grammar, rhetoric, poetry, music, mathematics, geography, national history, natural history, astronomy, ethics, and philosophy. In other words, the complete course of study necessary to produce a well-rounded, fully educated citizen, unquote. That's this word. This word here that Paul uses, instructing us, is a teaching word. It's like now he's pulled us into the classroom, and we're all going to learn together what he has to say about the things that we should be doing. It's the full rounded every aspect. If in the Greek mind it meant everything you can think of that had to do with education and training, now Paul is saying, I'm going to move that into the Christian realm and everything that has to do with Christian education and training of your godly life. That's what he's saying. Now we're in the classroom. Now we get to learn. All of that. So that we will be, if I can use the words, a fully educated, godly citizen of heaven. That's what he's saying for us. Meyer states this means to educate by disciplinary correction. You know what he's saying? There's some things we're not going to learn without correction. Okay? Um, if you're a parent here today, just like I'm a parent, and I knew this growing up with kids and now grandkids... Uh, there some instruction that doesn't come easy. And sometimes it comes through, guess what? Correction. And there are just some things that Paul's stopping to say in many respects. Uh, in this classroom of life, we've got to learn through some correction. It may be some things we need to start doing. 
Or it may be some things we need to stop doing. That's what he's going to talk about. And so far exceeding that of the human education, I think, is the character building that God desires out of his children. That comes through this godly transformation we're talking about. So here we are. As one commentator said, in our present verse, verse 12, we learn that the grace of God not only brings salvation, but the grace that saves us immediately sets up a classroom in our hearts and becomes our teacher. Grace is our teacher. The grace of God. Not just saves us, but it teaches us. And notice, God's grace is not just about what happened to us in the past. That would be by way of salvation. Nor, as we're going to learn momentarily that it's grace for the future and the return of Christ, but it has everything to do with the reality of the here and now, that in-between stage. Christ saved us, and he's coming again to save us eternally from this earth, but there's something in between. And I don't know how long that in-between is going to be, do you? I don't. It could come today. Wouldn't that be great? Praise the Lord. Could be another 20 years. Could be another 100 years. I hope not. But it could be. But in between, we're in the classroom. The question is, what are we learning? How are we learning? And are we changing? So it entails learning what to say no to. And Paul gives us two simple ways. Not always easy to carry out, but two specific ways. Number one, ungodliness and worldly desires. Those are the things he says, stop doing. Deny those things. Renounce those things ungodliness, and worldly desires. You have them. I have them. Because our sin nature, as I said in Sunday school, has not been eradicated, has not been taken away. We still struggle. We're just rereading again this week in Galatians chapter 5 where we have the Spirit going at it with the flesh. You know, there's this battle back and forth according to Galatians chapter 5. And uh, the Spirit's going to win out eventually. But he has to be submitted to and so Paul talks about here this ungodliness and worldly desires. Uh, it it's really makes up all of what we would call, in many respects, uh, a worldview thinking out there. Uh, uh, let me classify, a secular worldview thinking that's out there. That anything goes. You can live, it doesn't take a genius to figure out. All you have to do is just look out your window uh, God forbid that we do this, but get on the internet and you'll see it all over. This world lives in ungodliness and worldly desires. Ungodliness and worldly desires. It's all around us. It's so pervasive. Uh, it's, it's just unbelievable. All of the things, basically, you can wrap those two words up. All of the things that basically are contrary and outside the character of God. And how do you know what's inside and what is the character of God? It's right here. And this book right here will stand opposed to everything out there. Everything. More and more. Uh, the one thing you can say about black and white is it's much easier to distinguish what's right and what's wrong. There is no absolutes. And God has all sorts of absolutes found in, within the scripture. But these are the things that Paul says are to be denied. They are to be denounced. They are to be rejected. They are to be disowned. Living without any regard to God by indulging always in the fleshly nature for self-satisfaction. That We get tempted toward that. And we get pulled into that. Uh, and sometimes we think it's, 
Uh, it's very pleasurable, and sin is pleasurable. Let's be honest. I wish it wasn't, but it is. That's why Moses, uh, in according to the book of Hebrews, said he'd rather be mistreated with the children of God than the passing pleasures of sin. Moses knew that. Sin is pleasurable. And so we, are, we gravitate by human nature and by our sinful flesh toward that which is ungodly and worldly desires. And so we're learning more and more in this classroom how not to do that. And we will see that here in a moment. But there needs to be a detesting of these areas and uh, having nothing to do with them. And, and they find their fingers in all sorts of different ways. And before we know it, in subtle ways, we're sucked in to some ungodly things. We're, we're sucked into some worldly desires. We need to be on guard. Jude describes them in this way. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You get the key word there? Ungodly. Ungodly. And I think Jude is the epitome of where we are today. And God is still bringing judgment and convicting the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they've done in an ungodly way, of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He goes on to talk about these are the grumblers, those who find fault, those who follow after their own lusts, those who speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. I don't see it in any other time than during political season. They will flatter you with everything this world wants. Interesting scripture says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you in the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. That's the world we live in. We, we see the ungodly lusts. We see the ungodly desires. And that's probably no, no place more evident than in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can close your eyes as I read this and you could say, Whoa, sounds kind of familiar. But understand this, Paul said, that in the last days, you've got to ask yourself a question, aren't we there? Will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pressure rather than or pleasure rather than lovers of God, having appearance of godliness but denying his power. And then he says, avoid such people. I've often in other sermons said, well, how do you do that when you live among the people? Um, well, I think it means we don't partake with them. We don't participate with them. We stand out more like we're in the, the right rather than the wrong. So, Paul instructs us what we ought to do, but, but then he goes on and gives us three ways, or three instructions as our teacher, as grace teaches us, three things we ought to do. And notice he just simply says to live sensibly. I like that word, probably more 
rightly, soberly, or with self-control, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, take, take those two and contrast them. Here's an ungodly, worldly way of living. Now you've got uh, a self-controlled, righteous, godly way. They stand out so contrasted to one another that it's amazing. There's just no way. I, I, I guess the thing about living in a black and white world is that there's no question now anymore about the gray. So we, we see the contrast of all the wickedness and we see all the way we're to live godly uh, and righteously before God. And so these three areas, because saving grace that is not lived out is not true grace. And its future expectation is really of no effect. Uh, if you stop here, because grace has to have something to do with how we live. It's not just that it saves us and now we're on the, the boat to heaven and we just sit down and take it easy. There's something about the lifestyle, how God says you are to live. In one of my Bibles in the flyleaf, I, I have these words. I am only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And what I can do, that I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I shall do. I think that's good. By the grace of God, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And that is to live sensibly, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. By the way, I think that's kind of interesting that he uses that terminology, present age. This is what we call in the dispensational camp as the age of grace. Interesting, isn't it? This present age, the time of the church, the time of God's grace. Because once in my theological thinking, the rapture takes place, then chaos is going to break loose in those seven years of the tribulation. This is a time of God's grace, more evident than ever. So the objective is to live in self-controlled lives. Self-controlled lives. One of the fruit of the Spirit is that, of course, of self-control. Righteous. A, a right way of living. And the only way we can have the right way of living is understanding what the right standard of living is. And I believe this is the standard right here. Uh, if anybody else wants to try to tell us what we do, any philosophers, psychologists, tell us different than this book, this is the standard. This is the way we live rightly. This is the way we live godly. That's why Paul said, have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds a promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So the question, perhaps, is, as we look at these three encompassed together, how are we disciplining ourselves toward a godly life? What are, what are those steps we are taking to be able to make sure that the disciplines of our lives are uh, in accordance with helping us to grow and to be more like the image of Jesus Christ and finding that transformation? We do that in a negative way. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world. That's the negative. If we start taking on 
what, we, what the world looks like, we're in trouble. Because that's why Paul goes on to say, don't be transformed, but by, or don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the way, you change the mind, you change the life. You change the mind, you change the actions. So we start with the mind by Scripture. And then we will discern what the will of God is. So to live under self-control is to live by those standards of righteousness and living in a godly manner that God would desire us to live. There's a real simple illustration of that. And, and it comes from the Billy Graham rule. I don't know if you know what the Billy Graham rule is. It was evident in our, back then, our <coughs> Vice President Mike Pence, which would basically mean he would never be alone with a woman by himself in any form or any shape. Okay? And he got hassled for it because it was the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham lived by that rule. That he would, he would never find himself in a compromising situation with a woman. Period. That's why if you ask my wife, I will never get on an elevator with a woman by myself. Uh, I, I Just not long ago, we were at a motel for our regional, and uh, there was a gal that got on. I don't even know if I told Catherine. A gal that got on, she said, well, you can get on. I said, no, thank you. I'll wait. She said, no, really, you can get on. I said, no, thank you. It was like this is confusion, uh, but I wouldn't do it. And, and I try to live by that principle. That, that, I think that's a godly rule, not a Billy Graham rule, but nonetheless, uh, there it is. Someone recently stated, good character is even more trustworthy than most of well-intentioned rules. Good character. Where do you get good godly character? By living according to the standards of God's word. I love Oswald Chambers. He once said, let other things come and go as they may. Let other people criticize as they will, but never allow anything to obscure the life that is hidden Christ in God. That godly life. See, grace not only has appeared uh, bringing salvation to all men, but grace has appeared to instruct us in what to do and what not to do. Because you remember our main idea, grace bestows marvelous benefits on the undeserving. None of us deserve his grace. That brings us lastly to our other, and that is that grace hopes. I'm glad Paul didn't stop there. Notice what he went on to say. Looking, that's present tense, looking right now at the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Again, reminding us, this is the one who gave himself for us. He redeemed us. From every lawless deed, purified for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. Interesting. Grace enables us not only to live rightly, but it lives, helps us to live rightly with a future perspective in mind. Living correctly, living biblically. So therefore, Paul says, we wait. We wait eagerly. Yeah, if, you, if you want a project sometime, just go through the scripture and look at what it says about looking for Christ's appearing. There will be aspects about waiting. There will be aspects about an eagerness for Christ to come. That's why I have a little bit of problem with theology that, that moves beyond the rapture to other aspects. We don't have time to get into it because it takes away from the imminent waiting eagerness that Christ could come anytime. I think the biblical writers wrote with that anticipation that it could be done. Why would Paul say in the present tense, looking right now, 
for the blessed hope. If you thought you had to go through the whole tribulation aspect of it. That doesn't make sense. And we are looking for that. We are waiting eagerly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, it is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And wrath is coming, not just in the form of not knowing Christ and having that eternal condemnation. But there's other wrath coming too, according to the book of Revelation. So, interesting aspect. So we wait, Paul says. We're in the classroom. Door hasn't opened yet, but it's getting close, and we're going to walk out it. But we also need to remember. We need to remember. He has saved us from every lawless deed. He is working on purifying us in the sense of making us holy like Himself as we yield and submit to Him day by day. As Romans says, being justified is a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. But then there's one last thing. I don't know if you noticed this. We're not just waiting, and we're not just remembering, but we're also laboring. Notice what he said at the end of verse 14. Zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good... Do you know, you know, you know anything about zealots? You read about the zealots just historically or in the time of Jesus. Uh, these were the guys that were very militant. They were... And that, not the aspect we're looking at. But they were very enthusiastic about what they believed. And they would go to great lengths to do what they were doing. The idea of zealous is more like an enthusiasm. We need to be enthusiastic, he really says, for good deeds. Now, let's qualify. It doesn't save you. He's talking to believers. There's an outcome of our lives. Actively and aggressively pursuing the works of God which he created us to do, according to Ephesians 2.10. I don't like when people quote Ephesians 2.8 and 9 and leave out verse 10. Verse 10 is the culmination of God's saving grace of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That he were his workmanship created to do good works, to do good things from our lives. Now the reality is, according to Philippians, that if we're yielding ourselves to him, he's doing the work in and through us. But it comes out. God's glory is revealed through good works. I'm been working on for years and I'll probably be still working on it when I die uh, a whole aspect of this subject of the believer's good works um, and what the New Testament if it, here's another project I give, give you all kinds of projects here's another project just go through the Bible and the New Testament see how often it talks about good works and good deeds for the believer you'll be you'll be I, I, I came up think of at least 12 of them that talk about this aspect for us as believers by the power of the Holy Spirit, because He's the only one that can change us to do the good things that we need to do for Him. And there's so much that's there. I, I'm going to close with this. Um, I, I don't know where it was where I read it, but I know who I read it from. It was your pastor that said these words. Seeing God's grace work in the past makes us thankful. Seeing God's grace work in the present makes us humble. Seeing God's grace work in the future makes us humble or hopeful. I, I wish Pastor Robert had actually given that to me today, but he hardly done it. 
And I just I stole it from him, okay? I want to read that again because it's, it's all about grace. Remember? Seeing God's grace work in the past makes us thankful. That's really the whole aspect of salvation. Seeing God's grace work in the present right now makes us humble. Because there's no way we can bow the knee before God and somehow pump ourselves up as what we're doing. It's all by Him. And then seeing God's grace work in the future makes us hopeful. That's what Titus is all about. I probably could have just started and said, let me give you these three things. Thank God and let's go home. Because I think it culminates everything into that aspect. Remembering that, that grace bestows marvelous benefits on the undeserving. It's, it's all about grace. It's not about me. It's not about anybody else. But it's about him. Last point I want to bring out here is just a, an illustration that I hope will bring it all home. Okay? Uh, and I want to quote. This is a story that, that is a true story. When Queen Victoria was a child, she didn't know she was in line for the throne of England. Her instructors, trying to prepare her for the future, were frustrated because they couldn't motivate her. She just didn't take her study seriously enough. Finally, her teachers decided to tell her that one day she would become the Queen of England. Upon hearing that, Victoria quietly said, Then I will be good. That's simple. The realization that she had inherited this high calling gave her a sense of responsibility that profoundly affected her conduct from then on, unquote, the story says. Folks, if that was serious enough for this little Queen Victoria, little Victoria, to know that she would someday be the queen and it changed her actions because of the high responsibility, should that be any different for us that serve under the King of Kings? that we as his children, should that not help us to take that sense of responsibility and affect us to live the way that he desires us to live only because he chose to do one thing and that was to shed his grace upon us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you this morning that again you have lavished us with grace upon grace, all because Christ appeared and gave his life that we might have our sins forgiven. We thank you, Lord, that not only do we have our sins forgiven, but we have power to overcome sin in our lives because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And not only that, Lord, you've given us a future prospect and perspective. Because uh, it's easy. With everything that's going on in around us, Lord, to get so wrapped up in it, uh, to get discouraged, to get depressed, to uh, get angry and, and get frightful. And yet, Lord, uh, you're coming back. And uh, we anticipate that anytime, Lord. That's our hope. Uh, not, Lord, just to escape from this life, but to know that uh, we will see your faithfulness fulfilled in bringing us to the portals of glory itself, so to speak. We get to be with you. and That's what we long for, Lord, uh, more than anything else. To see the culmination of grace finally fulfilled and our redemption finally secured uh, in 
knowing that we get to be uh, with you, to worship around the throne of God. And we thank you, Lord. Help us to be that testimony. Uh, help us, uh, Lord, to be those who would have answers today, to those who would seek and ask us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.